This is Sana Sana Podcast, a feminist podcast that promotes healing and normalizes mental health with Adriana and Adriana. Hello, Tokaya. Hi. How are you? I am incredibly good. <laughs> good, good. I'm also well. I'm really excited about episode six. Me too. I feel like this Tokaya time is deeply needed. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, we've been having Tokaya time all day. Part of why I'm in such a good mood is because we're recording post our reading club time, which we have once a month. Right. I know. One of my favorite days, really, of the month. Is it is so good. Reading Club. So thank you for everyone for uh, for coming. So Adriana and I host a reading club called Despierta Reading Club. And that was born from an idea that my tocaya had around having a feminist book club. And we've been doing that for six months, too, now. Six, six, six. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> that can mean it could be we can make that a lucky number yes now. i believe in that um so yeah i feel like every time after the reading club i feel so good after the amazing conversation and just silliness sometimes and we had an amazing book oh my gosh um, it's fucking me up i know in many different ways it's called her body and other parties by carmen maria machado um, so if you all haven't picked it up, you should, because it's amazing. It is really, really good. Um, so shout out to the Our Reading Club. We love you, ladies and guy. <laughs> <laughs> How have you been? How's everything else been going on with you? I've been really good. I've actually had a really raw week. Um, so doing a lot of, continuing a lot of personal healing work. Uh, we held a really amazing uh, screening earlier this week in the Full Circle Collective space. Uh, it was a screening of a documentary called The Work. Um, if you haven't seen it, you have to see it. But also make sure that if you watch it, give yourself plenty of space afterwards to process and take care of yourself because it's very emotional and very raw. It just showcases work that is so necessary um, for men, women, people. It's just, it's, it's like a really good example of the work that we all need to be doing. Um, but I would love to get your thoughts on like what, because you were really quiet that night when you, <laughs> you were like not saying anything. And I knew there was so much like underneath the surface of yes. what was, you know, being experienced. So um, what did you think about the movie? Man, so, um, you know, we interviewed Dr. Hardin. And so I knew a little bit about the film, but not really. So I really came in not knowing much. And it really struck me. It was so powerful. Um, and to be honest with you, I'm still processing everything because mm -hmm. it made me sad. It made me angry, um, you know, about carceral, carceral state um, and the, just the criminal justice system. But it also reaffirmed my belief and the belief of the podcast that healing is done in community. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that was, you know, just amazing to like really see it on screen. Um, but I was... I was fucked up from it. Like, I could not even speak like you're saying and still trying to process it, to be honest with you. But it's definitely necessary. And it was just beautifully done. And the conversation that we had afterwards, even though I was silent, I was 
I was just doing a lot of listening mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and really trying to hold back my tears because it was just such an emotional night and a lot of us can really relate to what we see on film or like just interactions that were um, shown and so I'm just really grateful to have been there um, and to have been part of it. Yeah. So the documentary features a group of very talented facilitators who have been doing work like this throughout the country and actually globally. Um, they They hold peace circles um, some people would consider it like talk therapy or group therapy, but really it's it has a very spiritual component to it. Um, Dr. Hardin talked about how a lot of local here in Chicago programs like BAM, Becoming a Man, um, are based in this uh, practice. So um, the documentary itself documents four days of this type of work happening inside of Folsom Prison. Um, so it it is work that is done with just men in the documentary. Um, and then we were so fortunate to have one of the facilitators that is featured in the movie, Bud Wheeler. He um, joined Dr. Hardin for a talkback after the screening, and it was just really powerful, right? To be able to also see Bud, you know, to really see him going through his feelings, watching um, and reliving what he lived in real time, watching the movie. And it wasn't the first time he's seen it, but you could tell how like visceral it all still is for him. So we were just really fortunate to host it, um, host both of them, having the talk back and and really being able to give us some insight about um, just like a larger context of what what the documentary like brings to this work. Um, I also just wanted to thank Dr. Hardin and and Bud for for being here and sharing their knowledge and wisdom with us. We uh, plan to do more movies like this. mixed in with lighter movies, but the critical piece, of course, is that talkback component that we're really excited to have here. So if you're interested, you're in Chicago and you're interested in joining us for a screening, um, learn more at fullcirclecollective.space. So what else? Oh, so the other reason that I'm raw this week is um, I've just been really triggered all week I guess is the right word um I've actually been triggered for months now around this me too movement (laughs) and I don't did we talk about me too have we talked about it on this no not on the podcast but we've had a conversation yeah so I think we've purposely kind of stayed away from really unpacking what me too means uh mostly because uh I can speak for myself I think Tokaya you can chime in here but like I'm very entrenched in this work kind of already, like before Me Too, I've been really um, committed to consent, shifting consent culture, Um, and that is thanks to some of the work I do in a women's organization here in Chicago, but also just being a survivor. um, It's very deeply personal work that, although it's difficult because a lot of the time I um, have to kind of relive moments in my life where like consent was not given because I'm committed to this work I'm willing to kind of sacrifice that a little bit right so all that comes with a lot of self-care and 
um, still learning how to really take care of myself when things like that are a part of the work that I want to do. Um, and so this week, I've actually been uh, working co-jointly on an op-ed that is not going to get published. Um, I was working on an op-ed with some colleagues, and we just kind of missed the boat in terms of like writing it quickly enough, and also just kind of seeing eye to eye where we're at. So um, the thing about it is like I'm actually still incredibly grateful for the opportunity to be doing it, um, to be doing that work. Whether it gets published or not, to me, isn't even real indicative of success or like the outcome because I think these conversations whether we have them at work whether we have them at our reading club whether we have them with friends who agree with us I think to me the most important work is having um, conversations with people that don't agree with us or might not have ever thought of something the way that you might think of something but especially around this idea of consent so um Asi Sansari is the reason, like, we're having a lot of these conversations this week, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's part of, like, a like a bigger issue that we've been having for a long time. But specifically this week, Asi Sansari's uh, expose that was published in Babe.net has brought up a lot for me this week. Because for me... That is where the work really lies. Um, it's in, in scenarios like this where it's, to me, probably familiar to a lot of people. Um, for me, my personal stories around violation and rape, they've all been in these scenarios. So as someone who is a survivor, it's really hard for me to even say that word, like, I've struggled with the idea of calling myself a survivor or a victim, even within circles of um, crisis or like advocacy for rape victims. And it's backwards because if I'm speaking to someone else, I'm able to like support them in that their experience is valid. But for me, I've struggled for it for a really long time. Um, There was one incident where... um, I was raped and I didn't, I couldn't even call it that for three years. Mm. And it was because it was with someone who was supposed to be my friend. Um, I was blacked out, drunk, and I woke up to him having, well, to him raping me, not having sex with me. He was raping me. And I was so out of it. Like, I think for me, I was just more like, while this is happening, it's, you know, I'm just fine. Like, I, you know, I'm not going to get into the details, but I struggled with it for a very long time because the next day I chose to have sex with him. And for a long time I struggled, like, why did I do that? And I understand now, like, now that I've learned a lot about how rape works, like, for me that was a way to um, make everything okay. Like, I, I, I didn't experience that. Like, I, I wasn't robbed of something, right? It was almost like a way of, like, getting my power back and that's just one example like I've had to heal from a lot of trauma and a lot of self-harm like I've put myself in situations where um, I picked people in my life that just weren't good for me Um, a lot of my trauma comes from men that I loved and that I I was supposed to be able to trust Um, and I think that's my point right that like 
the thing about Assis Ansari's story, or I should say it's Grace's story um, that involved Assis, is that it's really hard for us as a society to see that that was assault because it's a quote-unquote gray area. When in fact, we just haven't gotten to a place as a society where we can accept that women have agency and can don't have to say no in order for something to be really fucked up. It's about like recognizing the person that you're having an intimate moment with and caring about where they are in that moment and caring about whether they are fully on board with what's happening instead of like trying to get your rocks off or trying to get what you want out of the situation. And while we can place this on men, like this is a societal issue that we have to learn about like really caring about that person that we're having an intimate encounter with. It doesn't mean that you have to love them or be in love or that you can't have casual sex, but like having respect and dignity for the other person is a huge part of consent. It's about making sure that you have enthusiastic, like, yes, I'm here. I want to be doing this with you. And it doesn't have to also involve penetration. Like, that just diminishes, like, queer sex, right? So Mm -hmm. um, I'm going off here because I'm just, like, obviously still very heated. But this is, like, to me, this example is where the real fucking work is because we even get into these like arguments of what like like we sometimes think about the rape that's in an alley right with a stranger and that's absolutely rape this is not like there's not one way to be violated and just like I've had a hard time calling myself a survivor or a victim I think there's a reason why right because we want to like be able to put things in this perfect little box um And to be able to draw a line, like, this is what that is, and this is what this is. So, like, if you didn't experience X, Y, and Z, then you are not a victim. And that, to me, is, like, again, where the real work lies. If we shift this idea of what consent is to, like, have no gray area, that's when we're really at a place where we know there's going to be people who don't feel the way survivors feel. So, fuck you, Essies. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, thank you so much for sharing that. I feel like you're completely right, and this this Me Too conversation, Time's Up conversation, all these um, catchphrases that have come up, Um, you know, it is really triggering, like you said, and I've stayed away from the conversation because communities of color, survivors have been doing this work, have been Mm -hmm. saying time is up for decades. This is not something new. This is not something that we're just realizing. And I want to affirm that, right? Um, For centuries, probably. (laughs) Exactly, for centuries. Like, ever since colonialism, I'm sure. Or even before. I'm, You know, I'm just... 
I guess I'm glad that, you know, celebrities, white celebrities are raising money and are, you know, putting it out there in in the media. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that we need to acknowledge that our communities and, um, you know, and that the anti-rape movement um, has been doing this work. And so let's not forget um who the most vulnerable are mm-hmm. who people um people that don't have access to services um that's just kind of what i see from like this movement mm-hmm. so yeah those are my two cents and i just feel like let's continue the work and i just hope that this helps create that culture shift in which we understand what rape culture is. We understand what consent is and it continues conversations with our families, in the workplace, in places of worship, everywhere, because we need to have these conversations. People need to be treated with respect and dignity, just like you said, and everyone deserves that. And I I know it's going to be really ugly before it gets better, right? Just like... Mm-hmm. My, actually, my therapist was using this analogy of what we're experiencing right now as a society um, as it being like a nasty physical wound and where like it's going to pus and look disgusting before it actually gets better, right? Because it's like it's purging itself of this disease, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I'm really glad that you're bringing up the intersectional point of this movement, which is probably why I haven't wanted to talk about Me Too on this podcast because it there's so many things about it that drive me up the wall. Um, and I also found it very interesting that with Hasis, like, it was difficult to me to take in, like... It was difficult for me to process a lot of the story because of the race dynamic, right? This is a man of color. Um, And I think it's really interesting that the majority of people that I've spoken to assume that Grace is white, even though we don't know because that's her pseudonym. Um, He's a man of color with power. So I feel like every time I have this conversation with someone, mm -hmm. I want to take it away from the individual and I want us to think about the institutional i want us to think about culture i want us to think about power and control and how that affects consent how that affects sexual violence like i think that it's so important for us to you know move away from the individual and think of the structures that are around us and the context that allows this to happen Mm -hmm. um because if we don't you know we're not really going to create any change um yeah so we're going to continue this conversation i mean we've had conversations like this before on the podcast absolutely and you know if you're listening right now we really hope that you're taking care of yourself if if you feel triggered at all we always put warnings on our podcast if you know we're going to be talking about Um, topics that are sensitive which frankly all of the topics we talk about on this podcast are sensitive because we are talking about healing from them and we believe you survivors we believe you not the perpetrator or whatever i just want to say that like we affirm and believe your experience above anything else i yes and your experience on any part of that spectrum needs to be believed by you first and (laughs) 
and don't allow yourself to feel gaslit by what society um, tells you is or isn't violence. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This is Sana Sana Podcast, a feminist podcast that promotes healing and normalizes mental health with Adriana and Adriana. All right, we're back. So, the guy, how was your week? How are you doing? Uh, let's see. I have been very busy, like always, I like to say. <laughs> um, but I also feel like I've been very productive. Um, there's been a lot of stuff going on with me, and I've just been trying to really focus on healing and trying to be um, very positive even though sometimes that's um, difficult for me. But I did want to share with you that I was finally outed for my podcast. Um, (laughs) Shout out to Laura, if you're listening. Laura. (laughs) Um, But you know what? I was outed in the most comfortable and safe space. Um, I work with other young professionals to support an organization that we all feel passionate about. And during a meeting, she mentioned the podcast and um, they're all amazing. So I felt really um, comfortable afterwards, even though I was a little nervous. So if you all are listening, shout out to YPAC. Uh, Thank you for your support. And we hope that you enjoy Sana Sana. Um, So that was really funny. And then after that, I was just like open and I had a conversation with my sister who I hadn't talked to about the podcast and she was like really exciting and supportive Mm. so she also followed us on Instagram so if you haven't please do so when I saw her follow I was like yeah we're here we're doing it (laughs) I'm good yay so that was kind of funny and just interesting um what else is happening I'm gonna be traveling to Florida Um, this upcoming weekend um, to spend some much needed time with my sisters. Um, You know, just like in any relationship, there's ups and downs and I feel like it's really time for us to reconnect. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm looking forward to that. Um, Just having some sister time, some healing time, hopefully. Um, We're trying to um, deal with some stuff with my mom so I might see her. I might not. Um, things are still. I might see her. I might not. I, we still don't know. So um, I'll keep you all updated. But I'm a little nervous. Um, but hopefully, you know, I'm just going there with positive vibes mm. um, to just have a great time with them yeah. and reconnect. Yeah. Mm, mm-hmm. Light a candle for you. Oh, and I also have important news. So I know I've talked about um, therapy and attempting to get a therapist through Advocate Medical Center or Advocate Medical Healthcare or whatever. Um, And it's been six months and counting. That makes me so mad. Yeah. So basically, you know, you need to be referred and then you need an intake and then they didn't have... Uh, women of color specifically I wanted a Latina therapist so they said that they were give, giving me a call mid-January I never got the call so I called them and I was like yo bitches where is my Latina therapist and they're like I would like to know who you talk to we never give phone calls like this they gave you misinformation and so when I heard that I blew up and I was like if I was in crisis 
do you know what I mean? Like yes. anyone else would have just given up, right? These are all the barriers that I had to face to access a therapist. But other people would just be like, no, like I don't like just so many people give up because of all these damn barriers. So finally, I have an appointment, supposedly. Let's see if it happens on the 31st. So this upcoming week. Um, and then I I got a voicemail from them and it just doesn't it doesn't sound like she's a Latina. But I mean, what what does that even mean? I don't know. I know. What does a Latina I sound like? I don't even know because she said her last name like a white person. Do you know what I mean? But that yeah. happens sometimes. Not everyone says it like it's like if I said Rodriguez instead of Rodriguez. So I was just nervous because. That's fair, but I if your last name's Rodriguez, I don't know. You know, I couldn't even understand. We have the code switch. I know, so. but I'm nervous just. But because I also just based on the interactions you've had yeah. with this place, I totally understand why you're hesitant to believe this is really happening. I mean, I'm gonna go. That's and uh, it better be someone brown. If not, we're taking this to the Twitter streets. <laughs> we're taking you to court. Um, no, no, I mean, this is outrageous. I and, hope that. It happens like outrageous. Yeah. Six months is ridiculous. I'm really sorry, yeah. It's just stupid. That's horrendous. And like, I'm just grateful that you are someone that understands the importance of this for you, right? And that you're committed because if you had given up, I think you would be in your full right as well. Right. You no, know, absolutely. Like, and I'm just grateful for you know everyone who's been my therapist for this entire time, right? Or who has had time to talk with me and just like process this shit because it's been really, really upsetting. But, you know, stay tuned. I will let you know how my therapy appointment goes. Um, hopefully it happens. If not, I wouldn't be surprised because advocate sucks. Thank you for sharing that. Just seriously, because I think it's so important that the people who listen to this show know like that you're not alone in in going through these like very real challenges to prioritize your health prioritize your survival prioritize like your healing so yeah i mean and it was hard as hell there were so many times where i was like fuck this like i'm not doing it anymore like yeah i'm gonna forget about it whatever i'm good but then mm no i'm not like i want a therapist and i'm gonna get it like i'm gonna i'm paying for it so We'll see what happens. What else you got this week? That's it. So because I was so mad about therapy and stuff like that, <laughs> I was and after um, we had Brenda, like a session with Brenda, who's an amazing healer, and you're going to hear from her soon. Brenda Salgado, thank you for being in our space. Um, so those are two podcasts that we've dropped here, hints that we've dropped Uh the interview with Dr. Hardin and an interview with Brenda Salgado that those will be in upcoming episodes. Yeah, so I feel like after we had that amazing time with her, I was super inspired about guided meditation and like really starting my morning off that way or just at times where I'm like upset, annoyed and just like need some st- some um, space for myself. 
So I was looking at guided meditations, like on my phone, whatever, and they sucked. They were so bad. Oh, really? Yeah. So I was just doing like a light search and then ding, ding, ding. I remembered our interview with Rosie Magana, Mm -hmm. amazing therapist and advocate. Which is also coming. (laughs) Which, yeah, it's also an interview that you should look out for. And I remember her mentioning that there were some available on the Northwestern.edu site. So I was like, let me do this really quick. And sure enough, their guided meditations are amazing. Mm. Like it's not, the other ones were super corny and just like weird voices. And this is amazing. So I was listening Mm. to that and really felt inspired and it centered me. And Mm. there's like a whole bunch of them. Like Mm. there was one that said when you're overthinking things, which I do all the time. So next time I'm overthinking Mm -hmm. and I'm like, getting into a circle like i'm gonna listen to that so thank you rosie you're awesome yeah awesome that's all i got this week's sana sana glossary words are medicine and reproductive justice last time we got together to record we actually talked through some of our understanding of what the word is and like you basically schooled my ass around what (laughs) reproductive justice is because my view is not view but my understanding was very limited in terms of what reproductive justice actually is. Mm -hmm. So I originally thought that the words reproductive justice were a term that spoke to our choices around um, whether to have a kid or not or whether to be able to have access to, like, abortion. Right. Right? So, like, anything that had to do with reproduction... And it is, but it's... That's just a small piece. Right. It's so much so much more. Reproductive justice is um, rooted in a human rights framework, um, one created by the UN. So you can imagine like anything from the right to work with dignity, to housing, to health care, to food. So it's really, really broad. And it combines reproductive rights and social justice. Um, so this framework came about because the mainstream reproductive rights movement often focuses on exactly what you were talking about, mm-hmm. right? So access to abortion, to birth control. And this is super relevant and necessary, right? But it's not everything for everyone, right? It's just a tiny little piece. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that kind of came out from the mainstream feminist movement. So Which AKA again, white. Problematic. Exactly, so right? Thank you so again think for your gifts. <laughs> so think about like, you know, you're a white feminism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but when you think about it, so many people, so many groups of people in communities don't even have access to health care, can't afford abortions. So um a whole bunch of feminists of color and activists came together and said, let's expand this and this let's make this relevant for the most vulnerable populations, right? Mm. So in a sense, reproductive justice is a response to the reproductive rights movement um, by the community of color. Because when the most vulnerable and marginalized have access and find liberation, everyone else does, right? Right. So that's why it's so important when we talk about intersectional feminism, when we talk about reproductive justice, all these frameworks are centering those who are most vulnerable because once we address that and once they have access and, you know, find liberation, we all do. Uh, One of the things that sticks out to me that you told me offline was that reproductive justice is perhaps the most intersectional framework there is, right? Right. So that's my understanding. Um, If someone else 
think something else, let us know. But to me, it is because um, some, you know, some people think about reproductive justice as the complete physical, mental, spiritual, political, economic, social well-being of women and girls. I'm going to say of people. Right. Of color. Uh, Exactly. Um, Which allows us to have healthy, which allows us to make healthy decisions about our bodies, sexualities and our choices for reproduction. Right. Mm. Um, And this includes our families and the communities that we live in so we can so our families can thrive. Right. So, for example, I can't make a decision about my body if I'm constantly exposed to domestic violence. Right. Mm-hmm. So that domestic violence and, vi- and violence overall is a reproductive justice um, issue. Um, for example, black and brown communities, mothers are afraid that their child will never come back home because of gangs. Community violence, it's also a reproductive justice issue. Immigration, Mm -hmm. if families are being separated, then families can't thrive, right? Right. That's a reproductive justice issue. So that's what I mean when it is a very intersectional approach. Food, right? Um, Economics, um, right? If If we don't have security in that way, then I don't have the same ability to raise a child as others who have more or are more privileged. If I have to feed my child food that is filled with pesticides and you know like that's it's not the same we're not all equal um and so reproductive justice is really addressing issues of that are broad and that are intersectional so we all have the same access and the same ability to decide to either have a child raise a child and a family in the most dignified way yeah well thank you so much for dropping that knowledge because i think so many of us um who you know agree with a lot of what we say or who are listening probably already practice from a a reproductive justice framework but didn't know to call it that like i didn't I didn't, most of my um, understanding of feminism and gender studies has been through my own independent study, right? Um, Or like living and working alongside other women who are in this activism work. Um, So this is exactly why we do the glossary, because a lot of the time we're actually, uh, we have an understanding, but we might not have the full understanding because we've never really had an introduction or um, exposure to like a real definition, so so to speak. Right, right. So this is why we do the glossary. Like we ourselves are always learning about these words ourselves and like um, making sure that we're just not making assumptions about these words and what they mean. So mm-hmm. I was super grateful to you for really schooling me on the real definition of reproductive justice. Uh, we could still always be better about breaking it down into even more simple terminology and more accessible terminology, not terminology, words. So that is what we will continue to challenge ourselves to do. And as always, if you have something to contribute to these definitions, please do it on social media or write us a line at sanasanapodcast at gmail.com. And you can, maybe when we do it, I just think that 
just the easiest way to understand reproductive justice because it does continue to change and to evolve as we continue to do work with our communities and for social justice is that reproductive justice is intersectional and it's about access, not choice. So if you just remember that like little line, I think that you'll be able to really understand what reproductive justice is all about. Awesome. So our next word is medicine. <laughs> and it might seem like a pretty basic word to break down, but I realized that we talk about medicine all the time on the show. And our upcoming segment, Corazón a Corazón with Carmen Mojica, um, is centered around this idea of medicine. So we wanted to make sure that we took the opportunity to break that word down. So medicine, I think for me, for so long, was driven by the idea of like pharmaceutical, chemical um, medicine that we are taught to believe through media, right? Through uh, advertising. But for so many of us that come from indigenous roots or are indigenous people, our understanding of medicine has been um, connected to what the earth provides for so long. And also, for, so for me, medicine is anything that's external of us that we ingest, right? So that we can take in. But that isn't always going to be a little pill, an herb, or um, a chemical reaction that we, we eat. I think... Anything that moves energy is also medicine. So anytime we're doing this podcast, for me, speaking what needs to come out, what needs to move in me, that is medicine. Yes. He, he, right? Hearing um, someone tell me their story and something inside of me has a reaction, that is also medicine. You know, the alchemy of our energies coalescing together that to me is medicine um not to not to also take for granted like how important food is that to me is also medicine so any i define medicine as anything external outside of ourselves that we ingest whether that's spiritually or physically and that causes a reaction that that promotes healing so yeah so for me medicine what is important for me to remember about medicine is that medicine was here before the pharmaceuticals, mm -hmm. before the hospitals. And what I'm just um, really coming to terms with and really enjoying exploring is that medicine is indigenous. And, you know, growing up, um, I remember my parents telling the story that when my oldest sister was born, she was sick and nothing could be, you know, she was just crying and, you know, was sick and they tried everything. But then my dad took her and my mom to a curandera and le pasaron el huevo, right? Mm -hmm. um, and when my mom used to tell the story, she like was maybe caricature. She was telling it as a caricature, like she was making fun of it. But mm -hmm. so much of that comes true, right? Because before colonization, be like our indigenous communities had medicine, right? So just like trying to remember that and really exploring different types of medicine has been really amazing for me. Mm -hmm. And um, I just wanted to mention that. And there's an amazing writer, Aurora Levin Morales, and she talks a lot about 
medicine and like feminism and how you know colonization has changed it so i'm gonna include some links she's amazing if you guys are interested in that type of information yeah and the, the only other thing that i'll add to this definition is um regardless of the medicine that we take in um how much respect needs to be had for it right so like not abusing medicine i think that with medicine, there needs to come great care, respect, and reverence for it because it has power. And I think part of taking your medicine comes with uh, like the understanding that in order for it to be potent to actually work, it has to be taken with a plan. So like really understanding what that balance is for each individual, it's different, but... Um, really making sure that you're you're having the respect for medicine and, and what it provides and you all are gonna listen to carmen mujica who has so much to say about medicine and about holistic and the connection between um, mind and body and so it's an amazing interview don't miss it it's time for our featured segment corazón a corazón Let's get to the heart of things with Carmen Mojica, today's special guest. Based in New Jersey, Carmen was gracious enough to spend time with us via Skype. Our conversation has been edited for clarity and brevity. Follow along and share your favorite quotes on social media using the hashtag Sana Sana Podcast. My name is Carmen Mojica. Um, I'm Afro-Dominicana. I was born and raised in the Bronx. Um, I am a midwife, a doula, a human rights activist with a focus on reproductive and birth justice. I've written two books, one of which is um, called Ihae Mi Mame, which is about Afro-Latina identity, and it's a memoir and, and uh, a research base, just talking about my own journey from undoing the, the influences and the damages that anti-blackness in the Latino community has had done to my identity, while also offering other Afro-Latinas a context. Um, I am also a public speaker, so I have gone to colleges and universities to talk about Afro-Latinidad, um, reproductive justice, um, trauma, intergenerational trauma. Um, I also am one of the co-founders of La Galeria magazine, which is a Dominican diaspora magazine online that seeks to uplift and engage the the Dominican, the diaspora Dominican community in conversation about our experiences here. Healing is one of the hardest, most excruciating, fulfilling, worthwhile things that I have embarked on. To heal um, is different than to, to cure something. Um, and for me, curing means that you're getting rid of, you're just getting rid of the, a symptom or you're, or you're getting rid of eradicating a disease or a sickness or anything like that, right? To heal and to be in healing is to be on an ongoing process. And I often tell folks that I'm, I'm, I'm always an old, I always am and always have been and always will be in a process of healing. Like, it's not like you just wake up one day and you're like, okay, I'm healed, I'm done, great. Like, that's, that's not realistic, that's not real. Um, mostly because we live, we live in a world that we're constantly exposed to trauma. We're like, as people of color, as indigenous people, and people who are not 
that don't fit the the mold of like white, cisgendered, binary, rich, all the things that that don't make us perfect, quote unquote, in what like the, the white patriarchal capitalist system wants us to be. Um, we're constantly being traumatized, right? There's trauma there's trauma that comes from our, our, gener- our intergenerational trauma that's passed on from mother to daughter and to our families. Then there's the trauma that happens to us in our personal life. Um, and then there's witnessing the effect of trauma within our family, which can re-traumatize or trigger you or like set off some, some memories that, that you may or may not be aware of. And then there's the larger world, right? Like we turn on the news and we, and we can't, go even five minutes without watching something violent happen, usually to some part of the oppressed, an oppressed member of society, normally, is who something incredibly violent is happening to, right? Or even in our own neighborhoods, we walk outside, and if we live in low-income communities, we're probably going to see something that is on some level traumatic, whether it be the institutionalization of trauma, Right, we're looking at like a hospital, we're looking at like a police department. Um, these are places that can trigger or that we know trauma's going on in those places. So that's why I say that um, it's impossible to be just like completely healed. I do believe that you can heal parts of your journey. That you can, for example, for me in my healing journey, um, I've experienced various different types of trauma. Um, especially trauma to my body um, as a woman, as someone who identifies as a woman. I've I've experienced trauma on that level. I've experienced intergenerational trauma of having and witnessing things in my own family and witnessing my mother go through things and family members and things of that nature. Um, I've been able to heal to a point where I am not devastated or in a million pieces or um, I'm constantly reacting, you know, but I feel like my healing journey has been a spiral where I like constantly am revisiting certain mm-hmm. places and certain wounds and certain mm-hmm. traumas and it's almost like uh, the universe or the creator is like making me check in, like we're going to revisit this to heal it up just a little more. It's kind of mm-hmm. like, it reminds me of like a tree, mm-hmm. right? Like, Trees have, like, all of these rings that they mm. gain throughout the years. And so my healing journey has been sort of like like that weathering and that, like, gaining of wisdom where the, where the, where the memories and the trauma themselves are still alive, but they, they change the way, they ch- I change the way in which I relate to them. Um, a lot of my healing journey was actually... Um, Activated in college because I think that healing, healing is a very intentional choice. Like when you you uh, get cut on your physical body, you can choose to let that cut become infected by not taking care of it. Most of us know enough to know that if we get a cut, you got to wash it and clean it. And some of us use alcohol, rubbing alcohol to start, like you know, to disinfect it. If you need a bandage, we'll put a bandage. You know, if we need to change the bandage, to let it breathe like, enough to know that those are the things you need to do to make sure that that wound heals. 
But you have to, whether or not you're conscious of it, you're making a decision to take care of that wound. You could leave it alone and let it be infected, right? But most of us make conscious decisions to make it heal. It's the same thing with emotional and mental and spiritual healing. You have to make a, a decision to do so. You have to like be an active participant in their healing. So that's why I always mark college as the place in which where I decided to start healing because around the time that I started going to college, which I was about 17, 18 years old, I started to realize and become aware of like this debilitating anxiety and depression that I had been feeling um, right before I went to college, I did try to take my life. So that was the most clearest indicator that I was not okay. Even though I knew I wasn't okay, it was like a humongous wake-up call. So in college is where I started to write um, a lot of poetry, a lot more poetry than I had written any time in my life. It's also where I started to do a lot of healing around um, just um, like this fear that I had of my of my uh, female body, um, what I consider to be my female body, um, by you know some deconstructing some of like the harmful messages that I had like internalized about my body being impure or my body not being uh, good enough or strong enough. You know, some of the things that get indoctrinated into from this very Puritan, Protestant um, way of thinking. Sometimes the Latino culture perpetuates because of colonization and having been colonized by uh Europe and Spain, who have these very Catholic, Puritan, Protestant ideologies that they came with. So, um, I started learning about my reproductive health and teaching myself because, as much as I was afraid of it, I was also very curious of it. And um, it was also in college that I discovered yoga and meditation. And um, through my poetry, I was able to connect with other people who who use their poetry to talk about themselves and their childhood and their own feelings. And so it was through poetry that I actually was able to start the process of healing from being mentally um, mentally ill and diseased. Um, as I continued through my 20s, clearly more traumas continued to happen. I was, um, I experienced sexual abuse in my 20s as well, which I, um, had to heal deeper and deeper from as the years have gone on. I feel that through going to therapy, working with herbs, I think that really, really helped me rec recover from anxiety primarily. Like my anxiety was through the roof, terrible, terrible, terrible anxiety. Um, and so when I actually started to work with herbs, they're called nervines, being herbs that help um, tone the nervous system or to repair the nervous system. So it was a combination of going, of going to therapy and using those herbs to actually repair my fried nerve endings. Because even though I was doing things to stop being anxious, I had to like repair the, the stress that my body had gone, up, gone through from that anxiety. Um, Spirituality has been a really big part of my healing journey um, and helping to reduce anxiety, um, connecting with creator through 
different spiritual practices, including, like I said, yoga, meditation, prayer, and other ancestral ancestral based spiritualities and, and practices. I realized that my anxiety was also not not being firmly rooted in not just spirituality, but in a spirituality that affirmed me as a black Latina. It's very difficult to feel affirmed in Catholicism. This is not me saying that being Catholic is bad. I feel that everyone has a right to believe in whatever you want to believe in and worship and the creator, God, whatever you want to call this higher intelligence and whichever religion you see fit and that you feel called to. But for me, as someone who's very connected to my blackness and Latinidad and history, um, it was very hard for me to reconcile Catholicism with being a colonized subject and knowing how Catholicism and um, Christianity was one of the arms of colonization. And further, like I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile with a religion that made me feel subservient as a woman. And that where I couldn't see myself in God, you know, in Catholicism, there's a very male-dominated image of God. And so when I started to look into different religious systems, I realized that other religious systems allowed me to see myself in God, you know, in different deities. You know, I looking at Hinduism and looking into um, when I was much younger, looking at Christianity. Greek mythology and all the things that kind of are on the on the on the outskirts of of main culture, even in some of like ancestral practices from the American Republic and IP and and um, South and Central America and Caribe, you see that there are very strong male, female, androgynous entities that we can actually see ourselves in. And so that was very affirming to be able to see myself in spiritualities because it's, I study and, and learn from so many in spiritualities that are uh, indigenous and African-based that affirm the earth and affirmed me as a woman and affirmed me as a person. What I realize is that many of us have anxiety and depression because we're removed from our understanding of the universe, like cosmology. Cosmology being how you, how a certain people or a culture organizes their understanding of the creator and their understanding of the world around them. Our indigenous African homegrown cosmologies were very clear about who we were and where we belonged in the big circles of soul families and um, like gods and how the world was created. We all had our creation stories. We all had some understanding of our, of our connection to the divine. And then we were taken out of that cosmology and put in somebody else's understanding. So that's very, unsettling, that's very unsettling for the human spirit, whether or not we acknowledge it. All that to say that my healing journey has been multifaceted. Um, and that's why when I speak to other people about healing, I never just only recommend therapy. Therapy is one tool that I've used, but it's been therapy, it's been herbs, it's been spirituality, it's been, like, writing, it's mm -hmm. been changing my relationships, it's been changing my relationships hardly to my, to my family, it's been recognizing on my own, through all that work, 
what are some cycles that I am continually repeating. So even at this point of my life where I feel, I feel like I've healed a lot, I know that every time, right, so I laugh, have to laugh because every time I'm like, awesome, I finally figured that out, the universe is like, great, now let's just figure that one out. Here's something else, I'm like, fine, fine, I'm ready, I'm ready, but, um, all that to say that, yes, healing is beautiful, and it's worth the, it's worth all the work that it takes, but it can be very painful, because, like I, like I made that analogy about physical healing, when you have to clean out the wound, or you have to reset a bone, when you dislocate it, Mm -hmm. that hurts, Mm -hmm. But it's worth it because it means that you're going to heal. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with emotional and mental healing. It's going to hurt when you investigate and reset that uh, psychological or spiritual bone that has been broken or dislocated. But that hurt and that that hurt is where the where the where you have to put your attention, where you have to pay attention, where it hurts because that gives you a sign as to how you can continue to heal and not. And then make it hurt less, right? Mm-hmm. And not numb it. You're listening to Sana Sana Podcast, Episode 6, with Adriana and Adriana. In this episode's Corazón a Corazón segment, we're talking with Carmen Mujica, doula, writer, and reproductive health advocate. Let's get back to the interview. So we know that you're an advocate in many ways. Um, you're a doula, a trained midwife, providing care to women and their bodies. Can you tell us a little bit of what led you uh, to do this work? Coming on to a midwife was a bit of a, not such a straight path. It was a bit of a curving, winding path. Um, when I was very little, I always wanted to be a doctor, a teacher, and a mother. That's what I would always say when I was little. And um, as I got older, obviously we forget a lot about our childhood. But mm-hmm. um, in high school, I realized that I wasn't good in math and science, and so I I let go of wanting to be a doctor. And um, it was interesting because I let go of, being, of wanting to be a doctor, but I would always feel like a twinge of jealousy whenever someone around me would tell me that they were a nurse or a doctor, but I never understood why, because I didn't understand that jealousy means that either you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, or you're not paying attention to why that person is instilling jealousy in you, right? So as I did my healing, as I did the healing around reproductive health and wellness, and I was looking all of these things up and teaching myself about my menstrual cycle and about my hormones, I realized through my poetry that I was very good at explaining things and that I was very good at um, teaching others. And so I, I, at first I was like, I want to be able to teach people, specifically women, people that identify as women, about their bodies because I'm, I'm, I have a pretty good grasp on it or I'm developing a good grasp on it. I want to help other people understand. So first it was that. Then um, as I was actually studying to be a health coach, I came across the word doula. And I became really interested in that field as I was reading about it. And so as I was reading about it, I decided that it was something that I was interested in. Um, so I went ahead and got, got trained um, because I wanted to be able to continue to still teach about reproductive health. But I, what I had also discovered 
because when you heal, you start to discover all these things about you that you didn't, that you totally forgot about. Mm-hmm. Um, I realized that um, I had always been told at different points in my life that I have a calming presence. So, literally told myself, what is the most stressful situation I could possibly put myself in where my where my calmness could help someone? Mm-hmm. Labor. <laughs> um, labor, you know, not stressful because it's a bad thing, but, you know, you're, it's, it's a lot of things going on. Like, a baby's going to come out of you. It's pretty, that's a lot of adrenaline. So, I went to, I went and got trained. And um, during my training, I learned about different comfort measures, how to help a person who's in labor more comfortable, um, not to take the pain away, but to help them through the pain. Mm-hmm. And um, I, that's also when I learned what the health disparities were for Black and Latina women in birth, which I had already by that point in my life been activated as an activist because um, I, I went to a social justice after school program when I was in high school. So I was already, I already had that political ear. So, um, it became something personal for me to be able to, to provide these services. And the program that I, w- I got trained in, it was um, get, being able to be certified and in exchange helping low-income women um, free of charge for their births, which was totally up my alley. I'm like, great, I get to get to do the service that I love, and I also get to do something that is very akin to direct action. So after my first birth, I realized that I could help women or people that give birth in a much deeper way if I was if I had more clinical training. So I decided to become a, a midwife, and um, I went to to Maternidad La Luz in El Paso, Texas, in two thousand and thirteen, and um, it was the best, most excruciating, intense experience of my life. The reason that I decided to train there is because I didn't want to be trained in a fear-based education program, which I feel that if you get trained in like a hospital, it doesn't mean that you're going to inherently always be afraid, but the understanding is that many people who are taught in a very clinical way are are told that birth is an emergency that they have to save people from, as opposed to many midwives who are taught that birth is a completely natural process that just needs to be assisted with, if at all. That's kind of like how I got into birth work. I feel that I wouldn't have became a midwife had I not started my healing journey, because mm-hmm. I would have not, I wouldn't have discovered these gifts that I have. Um, I was kind of just milling, like, you know, just wandering through life at that, up until the point that I started healing, wondering why I didn't feel passionate about something. Mm-hmm. And it was through healing and learning about myself that I was able to become a midwife and become a doula. When I, when I began to study, even just in college, when I was studying my uh, reproductive system and studying herbs and quote-unquote alternatives, as we like to say, ways of healing. I realized that I was reading this very whitewashed version of all these healing modalities. I'm like, it couldn't. It's not possible that all of this is new age, quote unquote new age. Mm-hmm. Like we never came up with any of these ideas before, for real. 
So even though I was appreciative and would appreciate a lot of the books that I learned from, I always had an instinct that like, nah, like there's no way that, that this is just new information, and this is just a new quote-unquote awakening. Mm-hmm. And what gave me that notion was actually, you know, whenever I get sick as an adult, I always call my mother. First, because I, you know, for some reason, listening to my mom when I'm sick brings me some type of comfort. She laughs, but she, I know she loves it that I call her. But um, secondly, I call her because I want to know what I'm supposed to do to get better. Because my whole life, as a child, being raised by my mom, my mom always healed us with Genevius um, Caseros, like stuff that she would make at home. And, you know, my mom never, you know, my mom, because she moved and she was um, immigrated here to the United States and never got to really um, finish her education, mommy never went to med school or none of these mm-hmm. things, but she just knew these things because of how she grew up and where she grew up. So that's who I depend on for medicine. And so I started to make that connection between what I was studying and realizing that I always knew that I had been it's used with this knowledge from very young that, you know, it's just stuff that you just know. And so I think that when it comes to midwifery and it comes to medicine, so many of us who have been removed from our ancestral land have also little by little started to lose this indigenous African um, earth-based understanding of our body. And I think that that's very intentional to want to have the people that you colonize dependent on your medicines and your ways of healing without ever giving people an opportunity or an inkling that they probably, that their grandmother or their mother probably knew a hell of a lot more what they were talking about than doctors do. I think for me it's been very powerful to connect back to understanding that medicine, medicine is not this, it's not created by by whiteness, right? Whiteness as an, as an ideology. Medicine has always been a part of pretty much all of our cultures. Medicine and being a doctor and being a curandera, shaman, la mujer que tu va a ver, consultas, like whatever you call it in your culture, right? It's always been there. You know, la comadrona, la paquera, has always been a part of every society, including societies that are indigenous to, to where what we call Europe. Even Europe itself got colonized, but there was, there was indigenous groups of people there too. Mm-hmm. So in every single society, there had been some type of a role of a medicine person, medicine man, whatever the case may be. And so when we understand that medicine is very much having the ability to develop healing modalities heal the physical, mental, and emotional body, instead of that medicine is only pill form and hospital-based, I start to feel a sense of reclaiming. I think that, unfortunately, colonization has separated so many of us from eating habits and spiritual habits and emotional and mental practices to keep ourselves well. I think that it's a very political act to learn how to take care of yourself because this particular society and culture benefits from us being sick. You're feeling fine. If you're feeling well, you can't, it's very hard for you to be controlled, so to speak. If you are clear-headed and 
able-bodied, you're as healthy as your body has allowed you to be, given how you were born. And not free from debilitating anxiety, and you're not afraid of yourself. You don't think that, and you have no inkling that who you are culturally as an indigenous or African person, that there's nothing wrong with you. It's hard to shake somebody like that. Um, there's some of us that are strong enough to get through that and to keep our spirits resilient, resilient, but that takes a lot out of you. And so we're literally being killed, not just through the violence that's affected in our community, but we're being killed like, from the inside out. But how do you see the connection between the mind, body, and soul when it comes to mental health and wellness of the women that you've worked with or work with currently? I think the best place for me to start with that would be my work with births. Mm -hmm. um, there have been some times in births, especially when I was studying in the fossil, where I would see that there were emotional, em emotional reasons or mental reasons why some women wouldn't go into labor. Uh, there was one particular person that I, was, that I was helping in their birth. I remember that they were getting close to being overdue. And we were, you know, we were trying everything that we could to help her and advise her how she could start labor naturally. So, you know, by the time you get to, like, the end of your, the end of your uh, pregnancy, um, you're not, you're probably want to be in the most comfortable clothes that you want, that you could possibly find, your sweats and all of that. So um, after I had seen her the night before, she comes in to kind of to get evaluated again. And she's super, she's all dressed up. She got her makeup on. She got her heels on. I'm like, excuse me, where are you going? And she's like, oh, my husband, my husband crossed over because she had told me that, you know, she wasn't sure or she didn't know when he was going to be able to to come over with his visa to be able to come help her at the birth. So she's like all balled up, mad cute. I was like, all right, cool, awesome. I'll see you tonight. And sure enough, she comes in in full active labor. And I share that story to say that like a lot, sometimes from what I've seen, people can actually consciously or unconsciously prevent themselves or prevent the body from going into labor just by how they feel or what they're thinking and um, part of that is very much connected to the feeling of safety um i think i say this at least once a week we forget that we're mammals mm -hmm. like just because we got these big ass brains and like the frontal cortex and all this other stuff <laughs> we forget that like we're humans yes but we animals like, mm -hmm. that's, like straight up and down we're mammals and um Whenever you find a, a cat or a dog who has given birth, normally they don't give birth out in the open. They're probably under the bed mm -hmm. or in a closet or somewhere very protected, you know? And um, the reason being is that instinctually, we are, we are wired to want to give birth in the safest condition possible for our bodies to be able to release. And so when a mammal feels threatened or feels like this place or whatever's going on is not safe for their offspring, for their child, their body will literally send the message that it's not okay or it's not safe for it to give birth. So even in the example that I gave, you know, clearly she was safe, you know, she was with midwives, mm -hmm. she was in a safe place to give birth. 
it may have been that somewhere in her psychology or in her own life, she felt completely at ease and safe and comfortable once her partner showed mm-hmm. up. And I feel that like when we're talking about the, the mind, body, and spiritual connection when it comes to healing and when it comes to health in general, there's a lot of things that our bodies will manifest because of our, um, um, our emotional state of being. Like one real easy example that I can, that I can use is just tension in your body. You know, like, there's so many of us who have our shoulders, like, all bunched up and, like, tense. Like, even if you check your own shoulders right now, some of probably, <laughs> at least one of us three right now, yeah. I did not realize that our shoulders are not completely relaxed. No, we both just, like, totally adjusted as you were saying oh, yeah. <laughs> Stretching, trying to relax. Yeah. Right. And so, even that, even that small little example, you know, like, you may, you probably don't feel stressed out talking to me, like, you know, we're having a nice, cool, really dope conversation on a Saturday afternoon, Saturday morning. There's nothing stressful about what's happening right now at, at all, um, except maybe life, you know, life in, in and of itself could be just stressful to live. But that is an indication for me and myself, because even I had to, like, check in to make sure that my shoulders were relaxed when I said that, because... There are like mentally or emotionally, there might be underlying stressors mm-hmm. or anxieties that we hold that what our bodies are displaying. And even further than that, we have muscle memory. So that's why when I was saying earlier that like therapy is not the end all be all, it's not the end all be all because our, our bodies remember a lot of things, you mm. know. And there might be things in our subconscious that we either have it or not, or still needs to work out of our body. Even something like this, this book that I read, that I read is called um, Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom. And she talks about every single part of the reproductive system. And she talks about how many people who have breast cancer, for example, tend to be people that, are, that give more than they receive. And because the heart is where you give a lot of that love, Sometimes, not always, they tend to have that, or that when someone has some type of pelvic issue or reproductive issue, it could be very indicative of a mental state. Like, I remember that I used to, I used to struggle a lot with um, with heat protection, and mm-hmm. so I looked it up, and I was like, well, why do I keep having this? And I was like, well, first is my diet. First, I'm eating so much sugar, and sugar becomes yeast. So I need to get it together and stop eating so much sugar. But then as I was, um, I was looking at just what yeast in the body meant spiritually, it also meant anger mm. and unresolved anger. Mm. And so then I, like, I had to like shut, close the book or whatever it is that I was looking at and realize that at the time I was very angry at someone and I had not figured out a way to dispel it. So my body was literally trying to get, get it out by making, making sure that I had these recurrent, <laughs> this recurrent infection to get my attention. And so it, with the combination of, of not eating as much sugar as I was eating and also doing work around this anger that I had, this infection went away. <laughs> you know, and like, you know, sometimes it's not always your emotions and it's not always your mental state. So I don't want to over, oversimplify it. Right. This is a very intricate system. But, it, you know, it is worth 
investigating, mm -hmm. like, why is it that we have menstrual cramps? One reason that we have menstrual cramps might be that there's some, some, some adhesions or something going on in your own uterus or in your ovaries, or you, have, you may have endometriosis or something of that nature. Sometimes we have cramps because of our diets, and some, like, having a cramp and could be related to having inflammation. And sugar causes inflammation. And a lot of us eat a lot of sugar, whether or not we want to. There's a lot of foods that actually just have sugar in them mm -hmm. that are manufactured with sugar. And no matter how healthy we want to be, that we actually have to read all the labels to make sure we're not eating all these massive amounts of sugar. So there's a different types of food like sugar that could cause inflammation. And so once you become inflamed, you start to have cramps, right? It could also be that your cramps are trying to get your attention then maybe there might be something going on in that part of your body. So I'd like to take the approach of, of every single one as opposed to being like, you have pain because you have something going on in your head. Like, that's not always fair, you know, but I do feel like there's always some type of connection to the mind mm -hmm. when we have a particularly pelvic pain as, as people who inhabit female bodies. Um, for those of us who do have uteruses and you know, this, that is a, a very a highly emotionally connected, very emotionally charged area in our bodies. Like, even for those of us that engage in sexual, in sexual intimacy, we know that it might take us a little longer to feel like we're in the mood or aroused, especially if we're not emotionally engaged in that moment. Like, mm -hmm. it, takes, it might take a lot more work mm -hmm. for a reason. And I think even something like that, like sexual response, to, to somebody else's body is very it's very indicative of the mind-body connection mm -hmm. or for, or even to simplify it more and this is the last example that I'll give you like I was saying earlier I used to have debilitating anxiety and when I was anxious about something I would always get stomach ache always 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 be nauseous and like just pain it got to the point where I like I got like this, like a I inflamed, like, the bottom part of my esophagus because mm -hmm. I was so anxious. And so my body was responding to my anxiety. Every time I would get anxious, I would have a stomach ache. And then as I was studying yoga, I realized that your stomach is your solar plexus. It's, like, the seat of your, of like, personal power and will. Mm -hmm. And that that's also where you have anxiety problems. So wouldn't you know that the second that I got my anxiety under control, I stopped having stomach aches? You know, and so, like I said, and I'm in no way, shape, or shape, or form need to simplify it, but there is something to be said about how you think and what you feel having an effect on your body. Even how you feel about yourself dictates how you're going to take care of your body, and whether or not you take care of your body will then dictate the condition. So if you don't, if you have some type of unconscious, reoccurring, cycle that you're not worthy or that you don't, you haven't done the work around self-love, it is possible, I'm not saying it's 100% possible, it's a possibility that you probably won't do the things that you could do to be at optimal health, you know, or you won't push yourself to go to that dance class, or you'll just continue to eat things that may not make you healthy, or, you know, you haven't worked out the emotional relationship that you have with food because that might be really difficult, right? So then we're still talking about a mind-body connection where a lot of us have 
emotional relationships with food because food is the first way that we were taken care of when we were born. And so it's natural to have an emotional connection with food and that emotional connection will dictate how our bodies respond to food and how we respond to, to nutrients. And it's called um, Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom. You've talked so much about your holistic toolkit, but if someone was to ask you, Carmen, how do you take care of yourself? How do you practice self-love? I think it's really not simple. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't do anything fancy. I eat well, I sleep well, I maintain good relationships, I go to therapy, and I um, I check in with myself all the time to make sure that I'm doing what it is that I want, that I was, that I love. You're listening to Sana Sana Podcast. A feminist podcast that promotes healing and normalizes mental health with Adriana and Adriana. Thank you, Carmen, for sharing your knowledge. This is definitely medicine for me. I'm so grateful to you, Carmen, for spending time with us. If you haven't already, listener, we highly recommend that you spend time on Carmen's blog and learn more. Thesewatersrundeep.com will also link to the show notes. Colita de Rana is medicine. In this week's Botica, Victor Arroyo, a Chicago-based healer and facilitator, joins us to talk about his work and provides tips and resources. So I want to acknowledge my ancestors. I want to acknowledge my mom, my father, who come from Guerrero, Mexico. Um, So most of what I will be speaking about will be based on the knowledge that I've learned from my grandmother, from my mother, and from other relatives in my family. Um, and different maestros, too, from Mexico. Uh, So my name is Victor Arroyo, born and raised in Humboldt Park um, in a predominantly Puerto Rican neighborhood. I am an educator, a restorative justice practitioner. I believe in creating spaces for uh, people of color to come in and for them to feel like they are accepted and welcome. So through that, I've, I've been creating spaces around healing uh, and around um, uh, working with youth specifically in the education system. And the tools that I use when I work with, with people from the community are tools that I've learned since I was a child until now, uh, different tools that I've learned from my grandmother, my mom, and different maestros, teachers from uh, Mexico. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, I went to visit my grandmother in Guerrero. I was about seven years old, and um, Doña Simona, who is a relative of ours, we just call her Doña Simona, but she was a curandera in my family with my grandmother, and she was, she just looked at us. The first thing she would do is she would give us a hug, and then she would say, Oh, ustedes necesitan una limpia. And I'm like, what? Get limpia, you know, seven years old. And then she would just start hitting me with the herbs and she would just talk to me. And then she's like, ustedes tienen mucho susto. And I'm like, susto? I never understood what susto meant until I started to really learn about curanderismo. And susto basically means um, PTSD Mm -hmm. (laughs) or fright. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was interesting because she saw that and she felt Mm -hmm. that from us because we grew up in Humboldt Park. So specifically in the 90s, there was a lot of violence that was occurring in Humboldt Park. 
she saw that immediately within us and she said, ustedes necesitan una limpia inmediatamente. Like you need a limpia immediately. Um, and she started to give us a limpia and then she gave us a massage and she did all these other things. And so that was the first time I was exposed mm. to th this um, practice. Curanderismo, it comes from the root of cura, which means to heal. <laughs> uh, and curanderismo specifically comes from Latin America. But specifically, depending on what country we're talking about in Latin America, for me, I want to focus right now in the Mexico, because mm -hmm. that's where I, I've learned. But in Mexico, it's, a, it's this fusion of those cultures, but it focuses specifically on the indigenous um, the indigenous healing modalities that exist in Mexico. Um, and when it comes to curanderismo, um, you look at, as I mentioned before, you look at the physical, the mental, the emotional, and the spiritual well-being of a person. And from that, you start to work with the, the, the individual. And a platica is just a way of the curandero, curandera, uh, understanding the person more at a more deeper level and developing that relationship with them. It's making them feel welcome, making them feel accepted, making them feel at home. A platica is, is a welcoming place. So you're not going to an office, you're not going into a, you're not, you're actually, especially when it comes to Latinx um, people or the community is that you're going to someone who looks like you or someone who understands your culture. And a lot of the times there's a lack of mental health practitioners um, in our community who understand our culture, who understand our lived experience. And I think when it comes to a plática, people feel accepted and they feel welcome. They don't feel like they're going to be judged. They're going to speak the language that they understand. Um, and I think plática in that way is it's medicinal because you're creating that that personal bond with the person and you're saying I care about you I love you and I welcome you and there's no judgment here um, and I think once someone feels that they begin to really um, purge <laughs> they begin to purge about their personal experience and there's no it it's just one question how, how are you? Como estas? And during a plática, the curandero, curandera, we're just there to listen. To listen, and that's it. To listen, to listen, to listen, to listen. And then once they're completely done, then we get to um, make suggestions. Well, there's a lot. <laughs> I think the first, what I strongly recommend people to do is spend time alone and reflection um, and by doing that and this is something that I've learned from different maestros is leaving this concrete jungle that we call Chicago or any city that you live in and going to our true mother which is nature our mother earth right I mean mother earth is everywhere but it's covered in concrete <laughs> but going into places where you are connecting to the purest form and that's nature um, so going on a hike um, taking specifically if you if there's a lot of stress if there's a lot of anxiety that you're facing or going through I, I strongly recommend people just to escape and go into nature
uh, go on monthly hikes if you can, um, go on walks to the park, um, things like that. Um, another thing I think is just having those moments of being with yourself. I think a lot of the times people fear being alone. Um, even going to a coffee house and just drinking tea and writing down how you're feeling or checking in with yourself and saying, hey, how are you? And just truthfully answering that and saying, well, I'm stressed. I feel this. I feel that. But even writing those things down. Um, and also, um, self-care is a, it's a very popular topic that people are talking about. But I Self-care is important, but I feel like people focus a lot on like the massages and the spa and things like that, which is great. I think that's needed, and I recommend those things too. But I feel that if you really want to heal certain things within your life, then you have to go through those moments of reflection and those moments of solitude um, and also moments where other individuals could support you during those times, finding uh, a community of people who you can count on and support them and they can help you process things. Um, I think that's important too, is finding um, uh, people who are non-judgmental and who are willing to listen to you and who are willing to just listen, that's it. Um, the other thing I think um, when it comes to herbs or um, different remedies for people. I think when we talk about oils, I think important oils to have is lavender. Lavender is good for stress. Even creating um, like little uh, uh, pillows of, of lavender seeds. Yeah, and then just put it under your pillow uh, if, you, if you're having trouble sleeping. Uh, and also bathing in lavender oil. Um, that's really helpful to kind of de-stress and allow you to relax and have a good night's sleep. Uh, rosemary oil, I think rosemary oil is really important. I always carry it with me, uh, especially if you're having trouble focusing. Um, definitely uh, peppermint rosemary should be carried with you. I mean, I think a lot of the times people tend to go for the energy drinks or coffee. Instead of going for the energy drinks or coffee, maybe you can smell some rosemary and peppermint oil to kind of wake you up a little bit. Um, baths, if you have access to a tub, I think baths are really important. Um, I always recommend people to take at least once a month a bath. Um, and it's what I call a manifestation bath or a wellness bath, whatever you want to call it. Um, but within that bath is having um, lavender oil, having um, rosemary oil, putting the rosemary oil into your bath, espen salt or sea salt or mineral salt, any type of salt is good, um, and then putting yellow daisies into your bath. Um, and curanderismo, I, I know it's a huge topic to talk about, <laughs> but another um, thing that we, we talk about is um, colors, and so how colors are important to your well-being. And so yellow, in what I've learned, it symbolizes um, joy. Um, and so if you are feeling depressed or stressed, um, taking those baths and putting uh, daisy, yellow daisies into your bath. Um, and then just kind of having incense along the side, either you can have sage, copal, or uh, any type of incense that you want. 
and just having that moment of self-reflection and just having that moment of check-in, mm-hmm. <laughs> a check-in. Um, and I think the other thing is not being afraid to ask for help. Um, although, you know, I think a lot of times we're just on the go, 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 go. And, you know, just stopping for a second and just saying, do I need any support right now? Do I need any help? How can I reach out and let people know that I need help? Um, I think being transparent and honest to yourself and transparent and honest to your community and to your family is really important and having those conversations with them. So you can start to have the assistance that you need to better, um, to have a uh, balance within your life. is a process. At Sana Sana Podcast, we believe we're doing the work to heal today for a healthier, better mañana. Here are some ways we're taking care of ourselves. How are you taking care of yourself, Tokaya? I always start. I want to hear how you're taking care of yourself. So, (laughs) I'm really excited that I'm going to be in Florida because I'm going to be near the ocean And even though I've heard there's shitty weather, I'm still going to go in and just do some swimming and spend time with my sisters, reconnect. So I feel like that's really going to be really important for me to do. Mm. The weather in Chicago has actually not been shitty. It's been amazing. It's been amazing, especially for January. So my medicine this week is spending as much time outdoors as I can. I need to be a better dog mom always. So I vow to take a long walk with my larger dog, Cordelia, at least once this week. Sweet. And I'm going to keep up with my meditation, my guided meditation, because I think it really did help and it's super positive. We would love to hear how you're taking care of yourselves. So please share with us at Sana Sana Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And remember, you can leave us notes on SoundCloud, and they're really funny to read. Um, We already received some, so thank you. Um, But we want more. Sana mañana. Sana mañana. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Sana Sana Podcast, written and co-hosted by Adriana. And Adriana. Our theme song is by Alina Celeste. Our cover art features a photograph by Tanto Jensen. Join the conversation. Follow Sana Sana on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Sana Sana Podcast. And send us love letters to sanasanapodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Carmen Mojica and Victor Arroyo for sharing their wisdom and light. Sana Sana is a Despierta production and is recorded at Full Circle Collective in the Bridgeport Art Center in Chicago, Illinois. To learn more about Full Circle, visit fullcirclecollective.space.